yesterday was a fun day. I hope that um, all of you were able to come to the uh, Easter party here at church. I know my kids had a great time. I just want to thank Kate for heading that up and those of you who helped Kate. So just thankful for that. Uh, and if you notice that some of the kids are they're holding all these like greenery around. They're like, what in the world is this about? So this is, uh, this is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday represents the triumphal entry of Jesus uh, during what we now call the Holy Week. You know, so we are one week away from Easter. Next Sunday's Easter. So this Sunday is always Palm Sunday, and it celebrates Jesus coming into Jerusalem. When many, many Jews were coming to celebrate the Passover uh, feast, and many of those same Jews anticipated the arrival of this, this king, this Messiah, and they thought maybe Jesus was this man. And so we read um, the passage that Zach had up earlier, John 12, verse 12 says, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took the branches of palm trees and went to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that he had done these things, or these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was they heard um, he had done this sign. So, the branches and the donkey were both signs of victory. If the king was coming to battle, he would ride in on a horse. But when he rode in on a donkey, he was coming in peace, showing he was not here, that he had already conquered. The people waved the palm branches, showing that they believed that he was the king, that he had victory. And so kids, as you walk to class this morning, wave those branches, showing you believe that the king has come and that you're now marching off to class to be learning about this King Jesus who can give you victory over sin. So kids, you guys can go to class. Wave those branches, Micah. Wave it, wave it, Micah. I remember going to Israel many years ago, and um, I was with a group of friends. And we got there. This one dad, he, he, uh, his son had come with him, uh, adult son had come with him. And the dad said, oh, cool. Like, I, I didn't realize Israel had palm trees. And, uh, and the son executed perfect timing. He said, uh, dad, like Jesus, uh, palm branches? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. So, you know, sometimes we don't think like, Palm trees, we think of like Florida maybe, but yeah, palm trees, Jesus. And so this, he was like, oh yeah, I'm an idiot. So uh, if you're a guest this morning, uh, my, my name's Adam. I'm one of the elders here, and I just want to welcome you. I'm glad you are here. You could have gone to many different places. You could have stayed in bed this morning, but you're here. So just, just want to welcome you. Glad you're here this morning. I pray that you've been uh, welcomed already. You feel uh, cared for here. Um, we are currently preaching through the book of First Timothy, and as we continue to walk through um, the letter of First Timothy, we come to Paul's purpose statement. So if you brought a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn with me to 
1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 14, and we're going to read through the entirety of chapter 4. So let's, uh, let's get our minds focused on God's Word this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Paul writes to Timothy and to us, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct in love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, and for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your ears. Let's pray. Father, may your spirit show us how we are to behave as a household of God. May you be made much of as your word is proclaimed. Lord, give us ears to hear from you. Give us eyes to see. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you're a guest, maybe you're new to this series, uh, the Apostle Paul sent Timothy to this church at Ephesus so that the church at Ephesus would know how to live and grow as Christians. That was his concern. Um, Paul had warned Timothy in chapter 1 that leadership at this church, it was not good. And, and in fact, Paul said that certain leaders in the church had shipwrecked their faith. It's not a good phrase. You don't want that attached to your name. Um, before Paul left Ephesus, he warned the Ephesian elders that this day would probably come. He warned them in Acts chapter 20. In Acts 20, verse 28, Paul says to these leaders, and these, these are men he had been with for years, 
And he says to them, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. So Paul warned the Ephesian elders that false teachers would invade the church, and now that day has come. That's what he's writing to Timothy. So Paul gives Timothy his purpose for writing, and he leaves the church with how we can protect ourselves and the church, um, how we can protect the church from, from false teachers who speak these twisted things, trying to draw people um, away from the gospel. So Paul writes in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. There's so much to unpack right here. There's several things to notice. First, notice that there is an expectation for how Christians ought to behave. The book of James says that faith without works is dead. We cannot just pray a prayer, call ourselves Christians, and then not see a change in our lives. That just doesn't make sense here. In this text, in James, all throughout the New Testament, Christ comes in, he changes your life. And there's a change. Actions change. Behaviors change. Emotions change. And then Paul gives us why we cannot continue to live the way we used to live. He says here in this context, he says that we're God's family. We are his household, his family unit, his children. We are sons and daughters, brothers, sisters. Every family acts a certain way, right? For good, for bad. Maybe both. Each family operates according to its own rules. There are certain bedtimes for kids, certain words you can and cannot say, certain shows you can and cannot watch. And in verse 15, Paul tells us that we are God's household. He's letting us know that we are to operate under God's rule and God's direction. Paul encourages us as children of God to behave like our Heavenly Father. You ever notice maybe like family saying like, oh, you, you act just like your father. You know, that's what we should be becoming. We should be becoming more like our Father. We should imitate Him. Next, as the church, we are the dwelling place of God's presence. Verse 15 calls the church of the living God. It, it was a common theme throughout the Old Testament where the presence of God dwelt in some kind of structure, some type of building. But when you turn to the New Testament, it, it, it takes this, there's a change that happens. There's no special city, there's no tabernacle, there's no temple or building where God dwells. Now we see in the New Testament that God, his, his presence dwells with his people. Paul says to the church at Corinth, for we are the temple of the living God. To the church at Ephesus, which is where Timothy is, 
He says, in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This room that we're in right now, this is not a sanctuary. I know we can call it that. We try not to. I try to call it a chapel because sanctuary is confusing. But this is not a sanctuary. You are the sanctuary. This is a room where all the sanctuaries gather on Sunday morning to worship the one true living God. The church gathers, and the Lord, the living God, is among us right now. We are his house, worshiping in his presence, listening to his word. And after this sermon this morning, we get to celebrate his presence through the Lord's Supper. And then notice that we are also the, this pillar and buttress of truth. I think Paul uses this language specifically because of his audience. If you remember in Ephesus, Ephesus was most known for the temple of Artemis. This was how we started the series. We talked about Artemis and how this city worshipped her. The temple of Artemis, it was a massive structure. Had many large pillars on the front of it. Columns across the front. It is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world today. And I imagine as um, you, when the church at Ephesus was first reading this letter from Paul, that their minds would have gone to that temple. The pillar and buttress is what makes the structure firm and strong. And Paul says that the church is the pillar and buttress to the truth. The church has the privilege and responsibility of preserving God's word. One author writes, from age to age, from generation to generation, we have the responsibility of passing this word on, holding on fast, defending it against false teaching that would threaten it from the first century to now. So that is our responsibility. So we are the expression of God's family, the dwelling place of God's presence, and the preservers of God's word. And all this points to the incredible reality that God dwells among us. Like right now, the holy God who created everything, spoke it all into existence, is among us. Do you feel his presence this morning? In, John, or in, in chapter 4, Paul writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require absence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So the phrase later times found in verse 1, I think sometimes we think it's way off, but the way the New Testament describes this this phrase, it's, it's a description of the period between Jesus' ascension when he goes back to heaven in Acts 1 to his second coming from heaven. So we are in these later times. And in this section, we see Paul addressing these false teachers who lied so much that it seared their conscience. Whenever we affirm with our lips something that we deny with our lives, whether you realize it or not, we deaden our conscience. So that's what's happening. Every time like 
you say something with your mouth, you believe this way, but you live a different way, you, you begin to sear your conscience. And it may shock you to, to see what these false teachers were actually teaching. In verse 3, these teachers were forbidding marriage and require um, absence from certain foods. I mean, that, that was it. That's what they were teaching. Don't get married, and you shouldn't eat certain foods. These teachers weren't preaching some off-the-wall, you know, Christology that, you know, Christ wasn't deity. They were just saying, don't get married, don't eat certain foods. Paul calls them false teachers. They were from um, um, the devil himself. These men who Paul calls false teachers, I think we would probably call them legalists today. And I don't think we'd probably, you probably wouldn't just put legalists into this category of false teachers. Legalism is so dangerous because it has this false sense of godliness to it. The outside may appear to be clean, but the inside of the man is filthy. And this is why Jesus just, he just berated the, uh, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees because he thought they were legalists. Legalism destroys gratitude towards God. Legalists show um, such concern for practicing the, the negative things like don't get married, don't eat, but they fail to appreciate God's positive provisions. And the way you fight off legalism, Paul shows us here, is by using God's word to attack their demands. Paul says in verse 4, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Paul used creation to attack their false teaching. He goes back to God's word, Genesis 2. God was the one who created marriage. It was not Adam's idea. It was not Eve's idea. So why would God create marriage and say that it was very good and then now turn around and say that it was bad? Paul uses the same argument with creation to expose the flaw in abstaining certain foods. Um, after each day of creation, God said it was good. And then we have Jesus uh, saying to Peter in Acts 10, Rise, Peter, kill and eat what God has made clean. Do not call common or unclean. So while these false teachers, Paul, Paul had warned them, maybe we don't know how long since he left to where now the letter's being written, but he had warned them, like, expect this to happen. Be, be on guard. Be alert. So we should not be surprised by them. But neither should they be tolerated. So what do we do with false teachers? How do we spot them? What do they look like? Well, it's not that easy to spot a false teacher. It's not as easy as you think. Now, some are really easy. You can spot them. You can probably watch a lot of them on TV and spot them. Now, there's a lot on um, Internet, people sharing them around, Facebook. Uh, I would say any who align themselves with this health, wealth, prosperity movement, those are false teachers. Just put them right in that camp. But as I read earlier from Acts 20, Acts 20 says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So Paul says, you don't need to be looking out you know, on TV or the internet. You need to be just looking around here. These false teachers, they come from within. People that you feel like you trust and know, and maybe you don't know them so well. 
And this is why, man, I encourage you, like, this is why you need to have your Bibles. You need to know your Bible and not just trust what I'm reading from up here or what was on the screen. I could tell Michael. Michael could type whatever he wants in there. You think that's Acts 20? You don't know that if you don't look down. I could be speaking twisted things this morning. Remember, Paul was speaking to the elders in Acts 20, which probably means that some of these false teachers were likely former elders in Ephesus. The book of 1 John talks about some people in the church who seem to be Christians, but who ultimately proved that they were not by walking away from the fellowship of believers. And sadly, sometimes these who look like Christians just so happen to be people who are serving in the role of elder. And when this happens, it can shake the faith of a lot of people. And we've seen a lot of that in the last couple of years. A lot of these famous pastors who've kind of been exposed, and it's kind of rocks us a little bit. What do we do with this? Paul says that we should not be shocked or surprised when this happens, but you should probably go ahead and just expect it to just happen. Some of you put us elders high upon a platform that we do not deserve to be on. I am not your rock. I am not your foundation. None of you sang moments ago how rich a treasure we possess and Adam Goodwin, our pastor. Right? I saw these statistics earlier and it devastated me for two reasons. First, because I hurt for these pastors. Being one, I, I just, it always hurts when you see a, a brother fall. Second, because I know that when, par, when pastors fall, then this ripple effect happens throughout the church and it can be huge. Listen to these stats. As many as 50% of pastors' marriages will end in divorce. That, that's frightening. As many as 50% of pastors' marriages will end in divorce. Almost 40% of pastors admit that they've had an extramarital affair since beginning um, their ministry. More than 50% of pastors say they have visited pornographic sites on the internet in the last year. 30% of those admit of doing so in the last month. One pastor said, my, greatest, my, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. I, I love thinking that way. I, I know that one of the greatest ways that I can serve this church is by striving for my own personal holiness. I think about you guys. Like I, and, and every Friday, the elders meet. We meet at 6 a.m., and the way we start out is with accountability. And we just confess sin to one another. And as oftentimes we say, man, like this week, like I was thinking about some things, but even just knowing Friday was coming, like I just praise God for his grace. You know, I didn't... I didn't succumb to those temptations. And I just think about that even with you guys. Like, I don't, wanna, I, don't, I don't want to hurt you. And so my personal holiness, I look at it as a, way to, as a way to serve you guys. But just know, Paul says, expect this to happen. There's going to be times where elders are going to let you down. Leaders are going to let you down. So don't elevate us. We're not your Christ, Okay. We are broken people. Even though I'm your shepherd, I'm also a sheep. It's really hard. It's really challenging to be a sheep leading, you know, as a shepherd being a sheep myself. And so Paul leads us to this next section 
tells us how we can help identify these false teachers, how we can protect ourselves, protect the church. Here's his advice. Paul writes this in verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, so the church, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it, hold pro- as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. But you pick up some themes here as we keep reading. Words like training, um, discipline. You're going to see this theme he picks up here. This is Paul's answer to how we are to guard ourselves from falling away or being led astray. You're to avoid these silly myths and to train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. And this might be where you might expect Paul um, or myself to give us like seven steps to become godly, right? And then give us this list to like achieve these seven steps of godliness. Things like read a chapter of your Bible every day. Pray for 30 minutes twice a day. Tell at least one person every day about the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is kind of what we're expecting now. Some kind of checklist that we can, okay, I'm working myself towards godliness. The harder you work, the more godly you become. I mean, this is how most people think, especially here in Appalachia. We have our blue-collar, hard-working mentality I see this, especially in sports all the time. Whichever team practices the most, whatever team works the hardest usually wins. And we bring that type of mindset into Christianity. I just read from the ESV translation, and it says, train yourselves for godliness. I think that can be confusing. The preposition translated here in the ESV as for, it can have that understanding, meaning that godliness is obtained by how well you train yourself. But it can also be translated as in view of, like how the NAS renders this phrase. The New American Standard says on verse 7, it says, on the other hand, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. That's a big change. Train yourselves for godliness. That makes it seem like it's up to you. You train yourselves for godliness. But I think the better translation, the better rendering of this phrase here is found in the New American Standard where it says, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. So we train and discipline ourselves not for godliness, meaning that if you work harder, then you will become more godly, but we train or discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. One author writes, godliness requires no rules to keep, no steps to follow, no habits to form, no activities to engage in, no clubs to join, no fees to pay, and there are no key performance indicators to achieve. Godliness is not about us, but about God and his great mystery of godliness. Training for the purpose of godliness should be something that we prioritize in our days and weeks. But there are some of you who Paul says, you spend your time prioritizing your physical body 
over your spiritual body. I be not one of you. I'm not saying that I prioritize spiritually. I'm just saying I do not prioritize physically. <laughs> Some of you, you count calories. Well, I guess I count them too. I just don't care what the number is. <laughs> it's not that hard to count calories. It's just hard to keep them under a certain number. Some of you run, work out, exercise, go to the gym. You do all these things for your physical body, which is a good thing. We just read that your body is a temple of God. God gave you this body. We should take care of it. We should be thankful for it, how God created you. You are special. You are unique. You have value. But your physical body should not be prioritized over your spiritual body. Verse 8 says, for a while bodily training is of some value, okay? It's got some value. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. To put Paul's words on my own, all of you who are super fit, who count every calorie, who read every label, you're all going to die just like the rest of us. This is essentially what Paul was saying in verse 8. So you need to prioritize your spiritual body above your physical body. You need to train in prayer, train in the word, in fasting, in worship, in sharing the gospel with others. Spend your time in that kind of training. Your body will only last for a few years. But the outcomes from godliness will last forever. Then in verse 9, Paul uses a common phrase found all throughout 1 Timothy. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For, this, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. It is not exactly clear here. If what is trustworthy, this trustworthy saying is referring to the preceding verse, verse 8, or the following verse, verse 10. Verse 8 and 10, they're both, they're both sayings. Uh, both could be referred to as trustworthy or faithful. Both are deserving of full acceptance. Paul reminds us in Timothy that to this end we toil and strive. Okay, now when we use those words, toil and strive... Uh, you, you know, those are words, those are hard words, like to toil, it's work, it's effort, energy, it's exhausting. Striving has this idea of fighting, struggling. And you'll see this language all throughout the section. Train, discipline, toil, strive. This shows us that growing in godliness takes effort, takes work. Just doesn't magically happen. One of my favorite basketball players of all time was a guy named Pete Maravich. Uh, he played college basketball at LSU. I would say arguably the greatest college basketball player ever. I'm not going to get into Jordan and LeBron. Or Pete Maravich was the greatest college basketball player ever. His three years of playing at LSU, I think at that time he only played three because freshmen, not only they were allowed to play varsity, so... Varsity, three years, sophomore, junior, senior year, he averaged, this is average, 44 points a game. That was for a season. Incredible. 
Let me just remind you, there's no three-point line when he played. His style of play was far beyond his years. He was incredible. In one interview, he was asked about his work ethic as a kid. Pete said that when he was 12, during the summer, he practiced eight to nine hours a day. It's a lot. It's a lot of devotion. It's what he cared about. It consumed him. Then during the winter months, he said he practiced about four hours a day. The man conducting the interview said, wow, sure seemed like a lot of work went into all of this. Pete's reply, you don't get here by wishing. And I think that is what Paul was trying to get us to understand. Some of you really want to grow in your faith. You want to be closer to God. You desire godliness. But some of you really don't do anything about it. It's like you're hoping that if you just maybe sleep with the Bible underneath your head, then you magically will wake up in the morning and all this wisdom just appears in your life. Paul says that we must train or discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And there are many spiritual disciplines that you can pursue and train in to, to grow in godliness. I just want to recommend a, a, a great book. It's an older book, but it's still really good. It's called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by a guy named Donald Whitney. It's incredible. There, Whitney just talks about what it means to meditate on God's word, um, how, to, how to read scripture, how to get this godly intake of God's word, and how to share your faith, how to fast, what is, what is fasting, how to pray. And it's just a really good book. But I promise you, just reading that book is not going to make you godly. You've got to put these things into practice. Next, Paul tells Timothy in verse 11, command and teach these things. Now, once again, it's not super clear on what Paul means by these things. Is he referring to what he's already shared in the first three, four chapters? Or is it what's coming after? Paul realizes the challenge that Timothy will have going into a church where he is going to have to correct people, command and teach to people who are going to be older than him. I think that's why in verse 12 he says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Most think Timothy was probably somewhere around the age of 30 at this point. I know we have several men among us who feel some type of calling to vocational ministry who might fit in that mid to, to late 20s, early 30s range. It's really hard to be kind of in that age and to command some older, someone older than you and not come across as a jerk. The first church I pastored, I was 26. I pastored that church for a whopping eight months. Uh, honestly, I probably was never, not probably, I honestly was never their pastor. I was on staff, but as my seminary professors often reminded us, that you probably aren't going to become their pastor until you're there six years. That, that you just can't walk in and think you're the pastor and they're just going to listen to you. You're you're younger than most of them. They're not going to listen to you. And so I think that's what Paul is saying here. Like the, this idea of telling people who were twice, you know, at that time my age, that their lives didn't match up with God's word. 
And to do so without coming across condescending, it was really challenging. And I think the heart of verse 12 is that you cannot stop a person from thinking negatively about you. But it's really hard for them to despise you when you set an example in your speech and conduct and love and faith and impurity. It's really hard to come across as a jerk when they know that, man, this person, I know they really love me. And so when we think about our speech, uh, we often say this at our, at our house, it's, it's not what you say, but how you say it. Sometimes you can say things that are very true, but you just say it the completely wrong way. They don't, they don't know that you care about them or love them or want what's best for them. So Paul says, hey, like, you, need, you need to be careful how you speak and how you act. You need to speak with love and have this faith and in a sense of purity. Then Paul gives his final instructions in chapter 4, verse 13. It says, until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul says he desires to return to Ephesus, but until that happens, he wants Timothy to devote himself to some things. And I think there's a direct contrast here. There's a contrast between what the false teachers had been devoting themselves to and what Paul wants Timothy to devote himself to. Back in chapter 1, we saw that the false teachers were devoting themselves um, to, to these um, myths and endless genealogies back in chapter 1. And then, as we read earlier in the beginning of chapter 4, that some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So now, now Paul is saying, Timothy, I want you to show that same type of devotion, but instead of the those things, I want you to devote yourself to public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Paul says that Timothy is to keep a close watch on two things, himself and teaching. To persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, which is, that's, a, that's a kind of interesting phrase. Paul told Timothy that he would save not only himself, but also his hearers. Now, obviously, when we look at all of the New Testament, we know that Paul was not saying that we in and of ourselves can save people, right? We, we know that. That's not what he means here. Only Christ saves. But Christ has chosen to bring his salvation to people through the church. Remember, we are pillars, buttress of the truth. Healthy churches means healthy displays of the gospel to a lost world, which often means men and women coming to Christ. So that's what I think he means by you will save yourself and your hearers because you're going to go out and you're going to tell people about Jesus. That's what healthy churches do. Healthy churches evangelize. We share the gospel. We know that Christ is coming. There's a sense of urgency, and we share the gospel. It's not simply just inviting your 
friends, your family members, your coworkers to Easter service. It may start there, so that may be something you do this week is invite somebody you deeply care about to, to come to church next week. I promise you I will share the gospel next week. They will hear about the death and resurrection of Jesus just like they would any if they came to a church service in July. We're going to preach the resurrection. And so invite them, but more so than just inviting them, we're, we're supposed to evangelize. We're supposed to share. It's not just the pastor's role to preach the gospel. So just as we, the church, we are a physical reminder to the world of the presence of God. That's what we are. We go out, we leave this place, we are, we are the church of the living God. You are sanctuary, and you take God's presence with you. Just as we are that physical presence, Jesus gave the church a physical reminder of what he has done for us. And so that's where I want us to kind of focus this morning, what Christ has done for us. We get to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. So Jesus said to us, he said to his disciples before he went to the cross, so I'm, I'm leaving you with something. That way you always remember this moment that's getting ready to happen. And this moment's going to be huge. It's going to change history. Calendars are going to be changed because of what's getting ready to happen this week. And he said to them, he said, I, I, I'm, my body is going to be broken for you. As they're sitting around getting ready to take over the, take the Passover feast, my body is going to be broken for you. So he took bread and he broke it. So this morning you're going to see a plate that's going to have some pieces of bread that are already broken. So this is my body. I just want you to understand what I'm going to go through. And he said, this cup, this cup represents my blood that's going to be shed for the forgiveness of sin. That just as all these Old Testament sacrifices, as this lamb that's going to be sacrificed for this Passover meal, this blood would be shed for the forgiveness of sin, so my body, my blood is going to be shed for the forgiveness of your sin, that you are sending me to the cross. And I'm going so that you may have life. You may have peace with your Heavenly Father. That you can become a part of the household of God. So this morning, when you come, if you are a guest this morning, we, we, we practice open communion. You don't have to be a member of this church. We just believe that if you are a Christian, um, then you can partake of the Lord's Supper. If you're not a Christian, we ask you just stay where you are. Don't, don't eat and drink of this table Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians that it could cause damage to you. Some get sick and some even die. So we just want to be you know, reverent with this situation. So when you're ready, you come this morning, but think about those elements that you're holding there, what Christ has done for us. Remember that he loved you so much that he laid down his life for you because you couldn't live the life that was required for you to become godly. So he became godliness for you, and now you train yourself for the purpose of godliness, but you can't make yourself godly. You receive Christ. Christ does that work for you. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive the elements from this table, that we would not take the Lord's Supper too lightly, that we'd understand the seriousness that we are eating and drinking the flesh and blood of Christ, that we would, as John reminds us in his gospel, that this is a moment where we take and eat so that we can have eternal life. Just as we eat 
many meals this week to give us life. This meal of taking in Christ gives us eternal life. So may we prepare our hearts to do that in a right manner. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There's two stations if you're new here. Um, You can go to either one or the same, but whenever you're ready, you come this morning.